0: So the story is told of a uh, Taliban desperate for water plodding through the Afghanistan desert when he sees something far off in a distance. Hoping to find water, he walks toward the object only to find a little old Jewish man sitting at a car table with neckties laid out on it. The Arab says, my thirst is killing me. Please, do you have water? And the Jewish fellow replied, I have no water. Would you like to buy a tie? They're only $150. This one goes very nicely with your robes. And uh, the Arab shouted, you idiot, I don't need your overpriced tie, I need water. So the Jewish man looked at him and said, okay, does not matter that you don't want to buy a tie, I'll show you that you have not offended me. If you'll walk over that hill and you'll go about four miles, you'll find a lovely restaurant, go, walk that way, and the restaurant has all the water that you'll need. So sure enough, he staggers away towards the hill, he disappears, and about eight hours later, he comes crawling back to the Jewish man's table, The Jewish fellow looked at him and said, I told you the restaurant with the water is over the hill, about four miles. Did you not find it? He says, I found it. He gasped in a raspy voice. He says, But your brother wouldn't let me in without a tie. (laughs) You know, I like that. The story reminds me of the passage that, somehow or another, the story reminded me of the passage that we're going to examine in the. And, uh, you know, our ongoing study through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, today we will learn of the amazing transformation of a man who had a reputation for extortion, a man who miraculously, after being encountered by Jesus, went from being greedy to generous. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at that passage in Luke 19, You know, I always joke about the fact that it's, you know, this is one of my favorite passages and, you know, and and say, well, this is one of my favorite books and this is one of my favorite. It's kind of like, what's your favorite passage of scripture? And and to me, it's always the one that I'm in at the moment. I mean, this is, so today, this is my favorite passage of scripture. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we read these words. It says, and speaking of Jesus, Jesus entered and was passing through Jericho, And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house." And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, "'He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner.' And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, "'Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much.' And Jesus said to him, "'Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham.' For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, in this passage, we find the last personal encounter Jesus has with an individual before his arrival in Jerusalem and the events that will ultimately lead up to his death. And uh, all that remains is his telling of the parable of the the ten minas, which we'll look at next time, and also the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know, significantly, you know, the final verse in the Zacchaeus story contains the summary line of uh, the purpose of Jesus' ministry. And if you look at that once again, you'll notice that the Bible is very clear. It says that, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, saving the lost is what Jesus is all about. You know, and if God's people are to be conformed to his image, then it also should be what we're all about. And though none of us can save anybody, and any of us who have ever tried to save somebody from a situation that they're in, realize, you know what, you may be able to encourage them, but none of us could ever save them. You might be having a person, you know, you might have d- dealt with a person in your family who is was tr- tr- troubled by drugs or alcohol or, or some other calamity that takes place, and realize that, you know what, as much as we would like to save them and deliver them, you know what we can't but there's one thing that we can do and we can point them to the one who can deliver them from all of life's trouble and more importantly from sin in their life and find the forgiveness of God and Jesus is that deliverer he is that savior he is the one who has come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost and God's people have a responsibility to point people to Jesus And so as we look at this, in this respect, the salvation of Zacchaeus that we'll see here has telling spiritual connections. And one of the things I love about reading the Bible in context is that there is a flow or a pattern that develops. And if you'll go back and you recognize that, you know, we just saw the encounter, you know, the the perfect vision of a blind man in the last passage that we looked at. Here was a man who was physically blind, but his blindness was his greatest asset because his blindness uh, was, was, uh, it limited his liability of physical sight from the standpoint point that, you know, the world tends to look at things by the outward appearance, but God is not like that. If you remember when David was chosen from all of his brothers to be the one who would deliver Israel from Goliath, the Bible says that for God is not not like man who looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so here was a man who was physically blind and he couldn't see, but it was the greatest thing that God could ever have allowed to happen in his life because it helped him to develop the spiritual intuition that, you know what, there's more important things in life. I was talking to a friend this week who lives in Atlanta, and she said that her nephew is blind. And her nephew said to her one day when they were out shopping, he he said, Aunt Sandy, I wish that everybody was like me for just one day. And she said, what do you mean? He said, you know what, because so many people from everything that I hear, they're so worried about how things look that they miss how things are. I went, wow, how great is that? What great insight that comes Uh, for those who have an open heart, the eyes of their heart, heart that are open to God. And it also connects the story, if you recall, of that of the rich young ruler who had everything that the world had to offer and yet realized that there was something missing in his life. And he had a longing for spiritual truth. He had a longing to know God. And when he was confronted by what he needed to do in order to know God, he said, no, I'm not going to do that because that price is too expensive. And the Bible says that, you know what, if it's tough for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, it's like a camel that's going through the eye of a needle. But God said at that time, Jesus said, hey, but you know what? With God, all things are possible. So what we're about to see take place in Luke 19 is a rich man who squeezes through the eye of a needle and lives to talk about it. So from this passage, let's take a look at three things. The first thing that we're going to look at is that we're told of the circumstances behind Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus in verse 1. It says, And he entered, speaking of Jesus, entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold... It's kind of like it catches our attention. Behold, consider, take a good hard look at what's about to unfold here. You know, in verse 1, we learn of Jesus' presence in Jericho. The passage tells us that he entered and was passing through. And if we're not careful when we read an account like this, we think that, you know what, there's a certain sense where this encounter is, oh, it's a coincidence. I don't know how many times in life I hear, wow, what a coincidence. And I just laugh because, you know what, from God's perspective, there's no such thing as coincidence. You know, Jesus could have gone to Jerusalem other routes, but he deliberately chose to go through Jericho, and the only incident that's recorded that takes place in Jericho is the one that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 19. So there was a very specific reason, and in fact, later in this passage where he says, uh, he says, you know what, today I must stay at your house, is very telling, because what it's telling us is that Everything happens by God's plan and and according to God's purpose. In John 4.4, it said that uh, the woman at the well, Jesus encountered her. And the Bible tells us that he must go. He had to pass through Samaria. Why? Why? He could have went a whole bunch of different directions. Well, because, you know what? God has a plan and God has a purpose behind everything that happens. Everything that Jesus did, everything that God does is always according to his predetermined plan and by the foreknowledge of God, all things happen. You know, there's a time, the Bible tells us, there are no coincidences, there are no untimely deaths, there are no accidents as the world looks at them. You know, there's a time for everything. In fact, according to Ecclesiastes 3, there is an appointed time for everything. And a time for every event under heaven. God has made everything appropriate in its time. From your birth and my birth to the appointed time of our death, God has a purpose in everything. His encounter with Zacchaeus in this passage demonstrates that God's timing is perfect. And also it demonstrates the importance of each individual person. That every individual is important to God. He encountered a person and it's significant and it was potential for a life-changing moment in time. You know, you're here today. Or you're listening to this by tape or CD or on a website. It's just, you know, wonderful, the technology that we have to be able to share the greatest news that any person can hear, and that is of God's love and His transforming power that's in Christ. You're here today by a divine appointment. There is no coincidences as far as God is concerned. This past Monday night, I was invited to a house of a man who had a barbecue And he invited people that he had been praying for, that he had been talking to over years, who he wanted in some creative way to be able to share the message of God's love with them. And so he had sent out invitations, and he invited me and my wife to come, and he invited me to speak and just talk about how God changed my life. Out in the backyard, about 60 people that were there, and he fired up the barbecue, and he fed them all, and after they were done eating, he said, okay, And he introduced me and I stood up in the middle of the yard and I was able to share what God has done in my life. He said there was a neighbor who came that he had been talking to and praying for for 20 years that came that night only because he had heard that I had cancer and he had gone through the same thing and he wanted to hear what God had done in my life. And I just say, you know what, praise God for that because everything is, is appropriate according to God's timing and according to His providence and according to His sovereignty. And there were no coincidences that night. And there were six people who were there that night that prayed to receive God's forgiveness and trust in Christ. You know... And I share that with you because we live in a world where people are quick to say there are coincidences or, wow, what lucky timing or whatever, and they fail to see God's hand behind as he moves throughout time and space to reach just one individual, one person. And here's an example where Jesus went to Jericho because it was predetermined, it was predestined by God that this one man would hear of God's love for him and respond accordingly. You know, I want to encourage all of us to consider that example of Monday night and I want to throw out you know, a challenge to all of you that if there's anybody that's here that wants to do a similar thing, to have a dinner party, to have a barbecue, to have dinner and have friends or family or neighbors, whoever over so that they could hear the, the love of God for them, that's something that we should be doing on a regular basis. We're committed to reach this world with the Word of God but also at the same time God's world travels through His people. And uh, so just to throw that out and allow God to plant a thought or a seed in your heart in that area, and I'd be glad to talk to you about it because it's something that I think we should be doing more of. You know, and, and this this whole idea of God's timing and, and, and the fact that God is behind everything, it, and it's this truth that gives me God's peace in the midst of life's, life's seemingly chaotic moments. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like when things seem to be out of control... I go back to scripture and realize, you know what? Things aren't out of control because God's got everything under control. We may think things are out of control. We may think a CT scan's out of control, you know, health issues are out of control, finances are out of control, a child is out of control, your marriage is out of control, your job is out of control. You know, we think everything's out of control because it is. It's out of our control, but it's not out of God's control. And I'll show that and demonstrate that more in a minute, but because I know this, God is in control, and the Bible teaches and tells us that we know this, that all things work, do work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. So it's not out of control. We just need to see that God is in control and submit to His control in our life. You know, in verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to Zacchaeus and we're told everything that we need to know. And behold, take a good hard look. Consider there is a man by the name of Zacchaeus. His name name means righteous, but he was far from being a righteous man. He was a chief tax gatherer and he was rich. And it says that he was trying to see Jesus and unable because of the crowd and he was small in stature. So the Bible tells us that this man's priorities were as wrong as the rich young ruler, Here was a man that had everything the world had to offer, but he had nothing. And he knew it and recognized it. You know, from a tax collecting perspective, for those of us who are really interested in career paths and, you know, all that kind of stuff, I mean, this guy, from a career path standpoint, he arrived at what he set out to accomplish. There were only three areas in all of, all of the Middle East where taxes were collected. Uh, the first was uh, Jericho, the second was Capernaum, and the third was Jerusalem. So there was only three areas. There were only three chief tax gatherers. So there was a head tax gatherer in each of those three areas, but underneath, those tax gatherers were many other tax gatherers who worked. It was, you know, a classic uh, uh, pyramid scheme, you know, and and it was kind of the way that it worked. It was kind of a multi-level marketing is what we call it today. And so they had a program all set up. So they had three chief tax gatherers and underneath of those tax gatherers was was all the rest of them who worked the district and worked all the people that were there. And Rome appointed to each of these areas a certain amount of money based on the population that they would generate from a tax standpoint. So every one of them knew they had to produce a certain amount of overhead to cover the tax base that they had, but they also recognized if they got creative and they would extort money from people, then they could get as much money as they wanted, and then they had each of the people working underneath them who were just as greedy as they were, so they would go to individual people and know what they had to get from them. If they could get more, they kept it, and if they could get a little bit more, they gave it to the chief tax gatherer, and make a long story short, those guys got rich off of this scheme, and, and, and they were very wealthy. And that's how they got their money. He was kind of the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. You know? And uh, he was filthy rich, and I mean that in the very strictest sense. The guy was filthy rich, and he wasn't a likely candidate for God's kingdom. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, and I want to just reemphasize this. There's nothing ever wrong with wealth per se. The only thing the Bible talks about as far as wealth is concerned is you can't love both God and money. We saw that in the case of the rich young ruler when Jesus challenged him and said, okay, well, if you really love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then sell off all your stuff, give to the poor, and come and follow me. He was like, oh, no, is is there another plan? You know, he really loved his stuff, and Jesus, he demonstrated that. There's nothing wrong with material possessions. Many of the people in Scripture were very wealthy people. God cares about the fact that we love him more than we love our stuff. He cares about how we get our stuff. And so when you stop and take a look at how have you acquired your wealth, well, maybe now I'm getting to be personal. If you lied, cheated, and stole to get it, then you're no different than Zacchaeus. And so God holds you accountable for how you acquired your stuff. God cares about what we do with the stuff that he gives us. At the same time, the stuff itself isn't the problem. How we got it, what we do with it, uh, whether we love God more than, than that Those are all the issues that we really are challenged by. But anyway, as we take a look at this, this man had it all, and yet, like the rich young ruler, he was empty and he was spiritually bankrupt. You know, he reached the top of his career profession, his chosen profession. He was wealthy, and like so many people in the world today that are wealthy, he was unhappy. And the the illusion is that people who don't have wealth think that wealth will make them happy. And the reality is that those who do have wealth realize that, you know what, while wealth may buy temporary pleasure, it hasn't produced lasting contentment and peace and satisfaction in my soul. So we need those who are on this side that don't have wealth, we need to listen carefully to what Scripture says about those who do have wealth. We need to listen to those who do have wealth if they're honest and open and transparent that, you know what, you hear it all the time, money doesn't buy happiness. You know, it buys temporary pleasure But it doesn't buy contentment, it doesn't buy joy, it doesn't buy peace, it doesn't buy satisfaction. And I'll tell you what it doesn't buy, it doesn't buy peace with God. And so this guy knew it. And inevitably, like many who have run over people to get to the top, he wasn't liked by people. He didn't have any friends. The only friends he had were all the other people that were liars, cheats, and thieves that worked in their network. And you know what? And they all couldn't stand each other either because they all probably thought they should have been getting a higher commission. And so, you know, they were always at each other. So he, everybody hated the guy. And so when we look at this, he had a purpose. And if you're following along your outline, the purpose was, his purpose was that he wanted to see who Jesus was. Think about this. You know, he wanted to see who Jesus was. And we know from Scripture that no man's purpose is to seek after God. And I want to just blow up everything here for you in a second because there are some who think that, you know what, well, I have a desire to know God. You might be here today thinking, you know what, there's something missing in my life. I have a desire to know, you know, God. What's my purpose? Why am I here? Does God exist? Is he real? How can I know him more? What's his desire for my life? If I die, what's going to happen to me afterwards? You know, we think that it's us who are, you know, we're initiating this search or pursuit for God. So we read this text and it says, oh, Zacchaeus' purpose was to seek to know who Jesus was. But the Bible clearly tells us that in Romans 3, there is none who seek after God. That all of us like sheep have sinned and gone astray. That none of us are righteous, no, not one. And, And if you go back to our father, Adam, when Adam sinned before God, he hid from God. Adam and Eve ran and hid from God. Sin nature does not seek out the holiness and perfection of God. Sin hides from God. And here's what I want all of us to understand very clearly. It was God who sought Adam and Eve. It was God who came and pursued them. Listen to me. And it is Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you have a desire to know God, to seek out truth, to have an understanding of spiritual things, what life is all about, who you are, where you're going, whatever, you know, all these things. If you have that desire, it is only because God has given it to you. How did God give Zacchaeus this desire to seek after Jesus? I got some thoughts, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but they're thoughts nonetheless. Could it be possible that Levi, another tax gatherer whose life was changed by Jesus, had a dinner party and a barbecue out backyard and invited all his people over (laughs) so that they could hear about how Jesus changed his life? Is it not possible that this tax gatherer, this former tax gatherer whose life was transformed by the touch of Jesus, couldn't wait to go and tell all his co-workers what Jesus had done in his life? And maybe the word got on in the street through the you know the the the, uh, the the tax industry, you know, at the latest tax convention seminar, you know. Hey, did you hear what happened to Levi? Man, the guy flipped out, and now he's calling himself Matthew, you know. And, and it's like, you know, and, and he's a Jesus freak now. He's following Jesus, and everyone's talking about it. Could it be that maybe Matthew was praying? for Le- for Zacchaeus and all the rest of his buddies that were in the same business together? You know, I-, I don't know, but one thing that I do know is that God's Spirit seeks out men and puts a desire in our heart to know God. And so his purpose was to seek God. You know, so Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was because God had stirred up in his heart the desire, but notice, Zacchaeus had a problem. And what was his problem? He was small in stature. He was vertically challenged. (laughs) He, He wasn't a tall dude. And so here he was, and he's in this crowd of people, and everybody's talking about Jesus is coming through Jericho. And Zacchaeus maybe heard from Levi about this Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was, wanted to see what he had heard about, wanted to see, and I'll tell you what else he wanted to see. Don't forget, the guy had no friends, and he heard that Jesus welcomed tax gatherers and sinners. Now, if you don't have any friends and you hear there's a guy who would welcome you into his presence, it's like, hey, you know what? I want to go see if I'm too far gone or will he welcome me? Do you ever think sometimes that you're, li- you're just so miserable that God would have nothing to do with you? Praise God, because you're one step closer than those who think there's nothing wrong with them and why do they need God? If you really understand how miserable you are before God, then let me tell you something. You know what? God welcomes you too. I praise God that he welcomed me. So he's in this crowd, and this crowd's loving this now. Because can you ever try to go to a parade at Disneyland or the Rose Bowl or something like that? If you have, why? (laughs) But I just thought it would be a great illustration because I know some of you do these things. (laughs) What do you think television's for? You know, hey camera angles, you know, but, you know, if you've ever been, I, I have been to Disneyland, I have been lined up along the road, and I've had to, tr- you know, I've had the, the, uh, the pleasure of trying to get up to the front so that you could see, you know, and hold your kids over your head, and, you know, put them on your shoulder, and elbow a couple people in the process, you know, it was like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, was that your no? Sorry about that, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, and, you know, and, get you have the, all those bad attitudes about how you sat on the curb, you know, and, and, like, some of you, you know, you put, like, little bulletins down on your chair so you save your seat, well, I like, you know, this This is the only place in the world that that's honored. You know, you stick something down on a curb at Disneyland, decide to save a curb spot for a parade, someone's stealing it. Whatever it is, it's gone, right? And so there's all this going on. And and so this is what's happening. Zacchaeus, he's vertically challenged. He's behind the line. Everybody hates him anyway. And you know this guy was just getting, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I bump you, Zacchaeus? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I step on your toes? And so the guy has a problem. He can't see who Jesus is. So he gets creative. And he runs ahead of this whole crowd of people who are lining up. And he climbs up into a sycamore tree, sycamores ficus, gets up in this tree. They grow about 40 feet tall, but they're really easy for short people to climb because the branches start really low. And so this little short guy starts to climb up a tree, desperate to see Jesus and he climbs up in the tree. But he didn't want anybody seeing him climb up in a tree. He runs runs ahead of everybody. I think a lot of times the song and the thing the kids sing and stuff, you know, we get this picture that he runs up, he climbs up in a tree, and everybody's watching him climb a tree. No, he runs ahead of everybody to climb up into the tree so no one sees him humiliating himself, climbing up in a tree. He's like Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody seeing that he was coming to Jesus in the daytime, but he was drawn to Jesus and he wanted to find out who Jesus is. So he goes up and he climbs up in this tree and he's hiding up in the tree and that gives us a better word picture of what's going on so he's hiding up in the tree behind all these leaves and he's a little short guy you know where's Waldo where oh, there's Zacchaeus there, he's up in this little tree and here he is he's hiding up there and he's humble he's desperate and what we've already learned is this he has the same curiosity of a child and you know Jesus said unless you come to me with childlike faith childlike faith C.S. Lewis wrote, curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. And I want to encourage those who are here because you're curious. That you know what, that's a good start. An inquisitive heart. You know, because there's one thing that keeps people from knowing who Jesus is more than anything else, especially when it comes to successful people, success according to the world's definition, and that is pride. They're more concerned what other people think than they are to fulfill that, that spiritual quest in their heart. What will people think of me? Zacchaeus didn't care. <laughs> Who cares at this point? Everybody already thinks of me what they think of me. You know, it's kind of like when they said my CT scan was stable. I got to admit, it was the first time that I'd ever heard that word and my name used in the same sentence. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like, it was stable. Wow, really? I'd never heard that. But but here was a guy who was like, he was curious. And Zacchaeus didn't care what other people thought of him. And we see in verse 5, the plan of God. Under the circumstance of this encounter, there is a plan of God. Notice this. And when Jesus came to the place, I love that. When he came to the place, when he came to the spot, when he came to the predetermined spot, That plan of God, by the foreknowledge of God, while he may have been hidden from the crowd, he wasn't hidden from God. Jesus looked up and saw him, and he sees you and me. All things, the Bible says, are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. We can't run from, we can't hide from God. Psalm 139 says, where are you going to go where God is not present? You can go to the deepest part of the sea, and God is there. You can go to the furthest place in the universe, and God is there. You can go to the darkest continents continents of the earth, and God is there. The most, quote, forsaken places on earth are places that may be forsaken by man, but there is no such thing as a God-forsaken place, because God is everywhere. And he went to that place, and he saw him. He sees you. And he sees me. And I want to tell you something. That thought causes me to tremble with fear when I am tempted to do that which is wrong before God. Because God sees what other people miss, but God doesn't miss a thing. On the other hand, I am comforted greatly by the fact that God sees me in an MRI machine. He sees me on a a, a gurney out in a hallway of a hospital. He sees me when I'm on that table every Tuesday going through chemo. He sees me at the, at, the, at the worst times of my life, at the greatest plight that I consider, and he sees you too, and he hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life. Isn't that a wonderful thought, that God sees us? He sees us. Praise God that he sees us. Just as he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree. And notice the second thing, the challenge that came from Jesus in verse 5, the second part of that verse. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Jesus called him by name, Zacchaeus. And it was almost as if he said, Zacchaeus, hmm, Zacchaeus, doesn't your name mean righteous one? Didn't you come from a godly family? Didn't you come from a people that, you know, taught you the things of God because they named you Righteous One? And yet you have gone so far from your roots. You've gone so far from your past. You've wandered so far from the direction that your family set out. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. And yet you've taken a very wrong turn, haven't you, Zacchaeus? And he called him by name. I mean, think about this. He, he's called us by name. Go to Romans for, for a second, chapter 8, the passage that I just mentioned that has to do with when we know that God causes all things to work together for, uh, for good for those who love the Lord according to, his, according to His purposes. And yet that passage also goes on to tell us some other wonderful truth. In Romans 8:28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What's, what does He cause? All things. What are you going through? Whatever you're going through is part of all things. To work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. He called him by name as he calls each one of us to hear his voice and respond appropriately. Think about this. Not only does God see us, but he knows us and he calls us by name. This will give you a headache, but I'm going to share it. (laughs) Psalm 147, as if I would have not. (laughs) Psalm 147, 4 and 5 God counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. You want to get a headache? How many of you have called your children by the wrong name? And then, you know, and it's like you throw out every name of every kid you ever knew or associated with, whether they were yours or not, and you finally get to the right one. You know, it's kind of like, man, and I go, wow. And God calls them all by name. He calls every star by name. You go, how can this be? How can God know every one of us by name? Six billion, some people on the planet Earth. And, and, you know, how can God know every person by name? And not only every name, but every language that the name is given. And you go, that's not possible. The simple answer is you know how he does it? He's God. I mean, stop and think about how simple some things get sometimes. How does God name every star? How does God know every name of every human being who are walking on the face of the earth and even those who have lived, that are died, that are waiting for judgment, those who are in his presence? How does God know the name of every person and everything? Because he's God. Because he's God. And not only, what's more amazing is that, you know, we think about more wonderful than my mind can conceive, as the song says. He's God. And what's even more amazing that he knows my name is that he cares for me. And he cares for you. Psalm 103, what is man that you are mindful of him that he is but dust? And yet the psalm clearly teaches that God cares for me. And he cares for you. And he knows you. And he knows what you're going through. And he knows whether you're a child of his or he knows whether you are, you've are. you turned your back on him. He is seeking you out and he knows whether you'll respond or whether you won't. But he loves you anyway. And he throws out that invitation. And I want you to notice the command of Jesus. He commands Zacchaeus to respond. And see, that's what God requires of you and I, to respond. Zacchaeus, <clears throat> Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus had a responsibility. When Jesus called him, he had a responsibility to choose to be obedient to the calling, or he could have sat up in the tree. If he had stayed up in the tree, the text would be totally different than what we have before us. It would have been just as sad as the rich young ruler who turned and walked away. Jesus commanded him to come down. Hurry up, for today I must stay at your house. Jesus regarded his encounter with Zacchaeus as a divine mission. It was a divine appointment. It was an encounter that was predestined before the world even came into existence. And you know what? And it's a beautiful example of how God moves in the hearts of men and draws men to himself. And yet how man has a responsibility to respond to the call. And some of us shake our head and go, how is that possible? And I go back to the answer I already gave you. Because he's God. And he can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, that's consistent with his character and in who he is. He's God. The camel was about to go through the eye of the needle and live to talk about it. Number three... You know, what's interesting, too, is before I move on, the word today is emphatic in its position. Today is the day. Today is the day that has been ordained before the foundation of the world. And I can't help but think, you know what? Today is the day for maybe one person here. Today is the day for one person listening to this message. Today is that divinely appointed day throughout human history when you will have an opportunity to respond to the invitation of God's calling. Let's look at the consequences the key experiences as we put all this together. And notice, and he was obedient. He was obedient. He hurried and came down and received Him gladly. Notice the reception is one of great joy. He received them gladly. He received them joyfully. He jumped, jumped down out of the tree. There was probably leaves that were flying all over the place. By this point, the crowd had caught up and they went, Whoa, there's a guy jumping out of a tree. Oh, it's him you know, it's him. And and, and and here he is, and all this was going on, and he got what he was looking for. He got to see who Jesus was, and he, and he welcomes, and he receives sinners. It was like Zacchaeus is thinking, hey, everything I heard about him is true. He is welcoming me. He is receiving me. He is, you know, inviting me. He he wants to, to be a part of my life, and and he was blown away by all this. His arms were open wide, and they were receiving him, you know, and and. and Because God never turns his back on a broken and contrite heart. You know, we've seen this passage, this whole idea of joy all through the, Luke's gospel. You know, the coin was lost, was found joy. You know, the sheep was lost, found joy. The, the son who had turned away and walked away and came back home again, there was joy. There was joy in all of us. And to as many as received him, that's the word that is used. To as many as received Jesus, to him he has given the privilege to be called a child of God to those who believe in his name. And that word is Zacchaeus received Jesus gladly. Now, that was a joyous occasion. You'd think that everybody would be excited about it, but notice this. But there were some who saw it, were beginning to grumble, saying, you know what, wow, you know I can't believe this guy still welcomes sinners and tax gatherers. There was a negative reaction. So Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his home, and his life you know, his life, you know, he receives him gladly, he receives him joyfully in the subsequent conversation. And I think this is where there's a little bit of confusion here as far as the text is concerned. Because the King James, uh, the New, uh, the NIV, the Amplified Version, all say that, and Zacchaeus stopped. But in those passages, Zacchaeus stood. And New American Standard said, Zacchaeus stopped. And in both of them, I'm going to show you how both of them could be very accurate in their translation. Jesus said... Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. Okay? Zacchaeus, Jesus, go to Zacchaeus's home. And in the course of their conversation at their home, Jesus has an opportunity to talk to him some more. And I'm going to show you in a minute how that happens. But in the meantime, Jesus is confronting Zacchaeus. You say, well, what did they talk about? Well, I guarantee in a very loving way, Jesus told Zacchaeus of, of his desperate position, how lost he was, and how he needed God's forgiveness. Jesus used the law to be able to share with him that, you know what, you violated the laws of God you know you're a liar you're a cheat you're a thief you're an extortionist you took more money than you were supposed to take you know John the Baptist earlier in his ministry when a tax gatherer came to him and said what are we supposed to do and John the Baptist who preached repentance as well as Jesus said you know what you need to do don't take any more money than has been appointed to you don't rob people that's what you need to do And so what he told him was, stop robbing people. You have robbed people. And Zacchaeus, realizing that he was guilty, said, you know what? I recognize what you're saying about me is true. I am guilty. He recognized his guilt. What did he do? Here's what he did. Notice. And in the midst of this, he was so convicted by what Jesus said, how he had robbed and stolen from people. In the midst of the conversation, he stopped which would explain the translation that says, and Zacchaeus stopped. He stood, which explains the translations that say that he stood up. He stood up in the midst of their conversation with people standing on the outside of the house. He stopped. He said, stop everything. He stood up and he confessed before man and before God, if I have stolen from anybody, and the word if isn't if I did and if I didn't. He knew that he did and it's translated very simply, since I have been a thief. I will restore to everybody four times what I have stolen from them. And notice this, and half of my possessions I will give to the poor. I want you to notice his repentance. He was convicted of his sin. He realized what he needed to do before God was I need to do what's right before God. I will take everything that I own, sell it all, give half of the stuff away to the poor. Contrast him to the rich young ruler when Jesus said, Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And he said, No way. Versus this guy's change of heart that said, You know what? Jesus didn't even ask him to do that. He it was initiated by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in his life and says, You know what, you're guilty, man. You need to make this right. He stood up and said, I'm going to give away half of my possessions to the poor, and you know what? And the rest of the money that I have, anybody that I've raw from, I'm going to restore four times, which was way more than was required by the law of God, by the way. So we went over and beyond the call of the law, and he said, You know what? It's like people that debate do I give God ten percent, six percent, eight percent, three percent? You know what? A generous heart. God God loves a gracious uh, giver because a generous heart doesn't have boundaries put on it, legalistic restrictions of what can I do, what is the least amount that I can do and still be okay with God. This guy was like, hey, you know what? I found what I've been looking for and all the rest of this stuff pales in comparison. I don't have a problem giving it all up and giving it back and making it right because I have found who Jesus is. He is my Savior He is my Lord. And we need to understand something. When Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this household, it is because there is an evidence of a life transforming change that has taken place. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. Listen to me, here's the difference between a person who is seeking a religion and a person who has come to a right relationship with God. A person seeking a religion will get the list of the rules and regulations and no sooner do they get them do they break them or they throw them away or they go find another religious system that's more compatible with their lifestyle but a person who has genuinely recognized their guilt before god has repented or turned from sin and turned to god has trusted in jesus christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the resurrection for the newness of life is transformed you know what our lives are changed for time and eternity Zacchaeus was never the same guy. And that's why Jesus, with a big smile on his face, said, You know what? I'm here to testify before the world. Salvation has come to this man's house, not because he gave his money to the poor, not because he restored that which was stolen to him, but because he had trusted in Jesus. And because he trusted in Jesus, his life was changed to where then he wanted to do those things as a sign that he was no longer the person he used to be. There's a big difference between the two. One is, you're working your way to heaven, but the Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith. Zacchaeus was saved from the judgment of God because he placed his faith in Jesus Christ as his deliverer from sin. Because he placed his faith in Jesus, his life was changed, and the evidence of his change was that he went from being greedy to being generous. Some of us went from being a liar to telling the truth. Some went from being addicted to drugs and alcohol and every other painkiller that's imaginable to trusting in the Lord for all of our circumstances. Some of us went from being sexually promiscuous to being celibate, from being adulterers to being faithful. Some of us went from cheating to now working hard for a living and doing what is right? See, there's always a change. And in Zacchaeus' life, he was an extortionist. In the rich young ruler's life, he was a man who coveted material goods, but was not willing to turn his back on his goods to trust in Jesus. And the reason was because he didn't realize the transforming power of God. If he had trusted in Jesus, his things would have no longer had a stranglehold on his life. So many people come, and I hear this all the time, that say, you know what, but I can't give these things up and I say to you that is exactly right and you don't need to give those things up because what you need to give up is your self-sufficiency and you need to give up the idea that you're a good person and you need to give up the idea why well, I go to church or I do this or that charity work you need to give up all those foolish ideas because what you need to give up and, and accept is that you know what there is no hope in you you are as lost as I was lost as every human being was lost there are none of us who are righteous all of us have sinned all of us are strayed from God and our own hope is turning to Jesus and trusting in him when you trust in him then he will change your heart when he changed your heart then he will change your desires when he changed your desires he will change your actions and all of it falls hand in hand and it's a wonderful miraculous work of God and not human effort so this is what we see happening here. This man went from being greedy to generous and it wasn't going from greedy to generous that made him right with God. It was being made right with God that made him go from greedy to being generous. Jesus said over and over again, talking about the love of money, You know, he just said that, you know what? The problem is Is that we, we can't be generous people if we don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And one of the great litmus tests of our faith, and that 's why I think the Bible talks so much about material things, is that that is the greatest test of where our heart really is, where your treasures are that 's where your heart is, and out of the heart precedes every action. If you love god you 'll be generous if you 're generous, that means that you will meet the needs of those who have need. It means that you will be open to listen to where God wants you to invest his resources for his kingdom 's purposes and you know and I th- you know we talk about this all the time the church does itself a great disservice if we do not preach biblical truth in this area because we know people don't like to hear it but i want to tell you something you may be held back from growing in your relationship with god and whatever is holding you back is the thing you need to surrender to the lord And if it's your love for money, then you surrender love for money because you want what God wants in your life because what he wants is for his kingdom's purposes and his glory and he wants what's best that will help us to grow. And every one of us have something that holds us back from going to that next level of being conformed into the image of Christ. In the context here, we're talking about money. But you know and I know what you struggle with is something else and all I say is this, you know what, surrender it, let it go and let God take that desire from your heart because until you do that you will never be everything that God wants you to be child of God yes saved in a moment of time yes but everything that God wants you to be conformed in his image not even close not even close in closing Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus teaches clearly that God sees us God knows us and what's amazing to me is He still wants us. He still wants us. This is a faithful saying and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The Son of Man, that great messianic title that Jesus gave to Himself, for the Son of Man, the promised deliverer, the Savior of the world has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we always need to be careful to talk about this word lost, because the word lost doesn't mean perished, doesn't mean gone for good. The word lost means that we have wandered from our rightful place. See, Adam and Eve weren't lost in the garden. They were hiding from God, but God sought them out. And when God restores those who have wandered from God, He brings us back to a rightful position as children of God to those who believe in His name. As long as you have breath, as long as you have life, you have not perished. You have not been held eternally responsible for your sin. You have just wandered from God like sheep that have gone astray. And Jesus has come to seek and to save you and to restore you to your rightful position that God has created us to be his children, to enjoy his fellowship, and to glorify him and praise him forever. Final question. Is God seeking you? Do you feel the tug of God in your heart? Do you have a sense of of longing or need that only God can fill? If so, you will know by this interior, what I call that interior unease. Nothing is satisfying. You seem to have no purpose. You have no reason. You fill up 24 hours a day the best that you can. But if you were told today like I was a year or a little over a year ago that you had an aggressive form of cancer and you thought that your days were numbered, which they all are for all of us, but you become more aware of that, and if you thought you were going to die short in, in a short period of time, what would become important to you then? Your business, your career, your education, your material possessions? Relationships with people. And if relationships with people are important, which they should be, then how much more should your relationship with God be? See, Zacchaeus had that disturbance of God. He lacked peace. He lacked purpose. And I like what one man writes. He says, the hardness of God is kinder kinder than the softness of man and his compulsion is our liberation. Christ is seeking you today. And if that is so, and you're at that sycamore tree, he's saying, come down. I want to dine with you. Today is the day. I I must stay at your house. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of our life and he knocks. And if any man hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in And have fellowship with you. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this wonderful account. This life changing. uh, Encounter that Zacchaeus. This just wretched tax collector. Had with the God of the universe. We thank you that you stir up within each of us. A desire to know you as our creator. And as our God. God I pray for any who are here today. That are listening to these words. Wherever they may be. That if you have. Caused within them a stirring or a hungering for you That they will recognize their need That they will recognize that they are not perfect That they are not right before you As each one of us have gone our own way We've all rebelled against you We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen We've made excuses, we've justified it We haven't always kept you first We've coveted our neighbor's goods We've coveted our neighbor's possessions Or even you know, our neighbor's spouse God, we haven't always honored our father and mother. We haven't always kept you first in our life. We've even thought about murdering or had hatred or anger in our hearts. And so, God, your laws clearly teach that all of us are guilty and in desperate need of your forgiveness. We thank you for Zacchaeus, a man who recognized that he was guilty before God, and he cried out for your forgiveness. I pray for those who are here today that they would do the same. God, forgive me, for I'm no different than Zacchaeus. I'm a sinner. And I thank you that you sent Jesus to hunt me down, to seek me out, and to save me from this plight. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead. And I trust that as he knocks on the door of my heart, that as your word teaches, if I open my heart to him, he will come in and have fellowship with me. God, I thank you that you have changed my heart even now. I look forward to how you will work out this salvation that you have given me in very practical ways, and visible ways, so that not only will I know, but others around me will see this transforming power of yours in my life. Lord, we thank you. We stand in awe of you for you're a wonderful God who sees us, who calls us by name, and even seeing us and knowing us, that you would still want us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.